The legends are true. But overwhelming power! The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. <laughs> Welcome to another episode of the Six to Sense Podcast. I'm your host, Lucas Johnson, with my co-host here, Christopher Klein. Chris, how are you doing tonight? I'm doing well. How are you, Lucas? It's a little late, but I'm doing okay. Got my daughter down, and uh, now we're just here to chat in some uh, Sixers basketball. Uh, yeah, I'm excited. It's been a while. Yeah. Ready to get back yeah, to it. It has been a while, so I, yes, I, I am too. But I think first, before we get back to it, we should apologize to our followers here because we kind of uh, disappeared halfway through the season on them, and uh, that's not fair to them. And in the future, we're planning on making this a consistent podcast again, hopefully once a week. And we apologize for any uh, any dismay, I guess we caused you guys, or... Um, so uh, to move on and getting back into what, what we came here to talk about, Chris, how about we go ahead and uh, you tell the folks what we're here to talk about today. All right, guys, we are going to revisit our Ranking the Sixers project. We already conducted it once in September where we ranked every player on the roster. And we have gone and redone that now since everyone's kind of at home with nothing better to do. We figured why not hash it out again. We had eight different contributors this time. We took lists from all of them, from ranking all 16 players on the roster, and we averaged those together for one definitive list. We're going to run through that list with you guys today. You can check out the article on the site as well. Then we're going to go through Lucas's personal list and my personal list. Lucas has a fairly spicy take, I would say, that he's going to be able to share with you all. And then we'll go through some of our biggest discrepancies and some of the biggest changes since the preseason. Then after that, we're going to go and touch on the recent Ben Simmons profile from Jackie McMullen and ESPN. That was a really great read. I suggest everyone go check it out if they're up for something to read. And then that's it. So I'm ready to get started if you are. I'm ready. Let's get going. All right. So we'll start it off with the definitive list for the site. I'll just go 1 through 16 here. Number one is Joel Embiid. Number two is Ben Simmons. Number three is Tobias Harris. Number four is Josh Richardson. Number five is Shake Milton. Number six is Al Horford. Number seven is Matisse Thibel. Number eight is Alec Burks. Number nine is Furkan Korkmaz. Number ten is Glenn Robinson III. Number eleven is Mike Scott. Number twelve is Howell Neto. Number thirteen is Kyle O'Quinn. Number fourteen is Norvell Pell. Number 15 is Zaire Smith. And number 16 is Muriel Shayok. Lucas, I'll let you go first. Why don't you give us the rundown of your list? 
Alright, so I'm going to go in reverse order of what you did, so I'm starting at 16. So starting with the 16th player, I'm going to go in reverse order of you, yours, Chris. 16th, Zaire Smith. 15th, Mario Shayok. 14th, Norval Pell. 13th, Howell Meadow. 12th, Kyle Quinn. 11th, Mike Scott. 10th, Matisse Thibel. 9th, Glenn Robinson III. 8th, Alec Burks. 7th, Forkong Corkmas. 6th, Al Horford. 5th, Shake Milton. 4th, Josh Richardson. 3rd, Tobias Harris. 2nd, Joel Embiid. 1st, Ben Simmons. So, Chris, I kind of have a good idea of what you're going to ask, what you, uh, what you want to ask me about this list or what you're very curious about my, uh, my rankings in this list. So, go ahead and ask me. I, I kind of got a good idea, though. Of the eight people who contributed, only one person had Ben Simmons at number one. That would, of course, be you. And I'm very interested to hear your uh, thought process on that. So, there, there, there are two reasons why I got Ben Simmons number one. Uh, well, technically three, but here's my process behind the idea. The, the f- biggest being is that I personally believe that Ben Simmons has proven to be not only I, – I think Ben Simmons not only vers- proven to be the more versatile defender between him and Joel Embiid, I think he's proven this season to be at least a much more willing defender on every possession, if not a better defender on every, a better overall defender. And this isn't a knock on Embiid, but I think we can both agree that this is a down year for Embiid, especially it seems like, especially for good stretches of the season, he didn't seem fully engaged. It seemed like he was holding himself back almost, like he was only going at half speed. So I think in that regard, I, I think I, I feel like Ben Simmons is the leader. And plus, there are two other things that I, I considered here. Today's NBA your best player has to usually be a wing player. It, it, usually your best with the game being perimeter oriented. I, I feel like Ben Simmons, the shift in power of who's the better player is going to Ben. We can slowly see, we started to see that when it, and Ben was just playing without Embiid and he was just balling it up. Like he was going crazy during that time. And so I think, I believe he was averaging like 22 points a game. So even without a jump shot, I think, he's starting to take over the reins as the team's best player. So that's that's why I had Ben number one. For, and, and like I said, Ben, Joel taking, seeming to kind of take things slow for most of the season instead of going all out like he did last year. And maybe it's partly to try to preserve himself for the playoffs, but it kind of it makes it puts Ben in a position to be the team's leader. And I think he's slowly taking over that role and becoming the better player too. Yeah, I obviously have Embiid number one on my list, so I don't I don't quite agree, but I do think you make some valid points. I, I would agree that Embiid has maybe taken more games off this season than he has in the past, and, and Ben certainly hasn't been in that same boat. I do think you mentioned play style is maybe one of the reasons you're leaning more towards Simmons. I do think Embiid is a bit of an exception to the rule when it comes to that offensively just because of how efficient he is. In the post, how much attention he draws, how much contact he draws. He gets to the line a lot, and obviously he's a really good free-throw shooter. So I think he's somewhat atypical in that respect. And also defensively, I, I think it's much closer now than it has been in the past. I think if you 
told me before the season we would be discussing who's a better defender between Embiid and Simmons, I probably would have called you crazy. But I think it's a real discussion to have now. Obviously, Ben is more versatile, but I do think Embiid almost single-handedly guarantees you a top five or at least a top ten defense just by being there as kind of the backup, the backstop, the cleanup guy in the middle. I, I, I don't think you can quite say that about Simmons yet. So I think in the end, I'd probably still stick with Embiid, but you certainly make some fair points. Uh, I appreciate you saying that. And yeah, like I said, like you said, Embiid is the exception to the modern NBA, and I'm not denying that. But I think turnovers are still an issue for him uh, down low in the post. But uh, moving on to some other small discrepancies in my list versus everybody else. I want to point out that I had Mario Shayok in front of Zaire Smith because I believe he's more NBA-ready than Smith is right now. Being able to contribute to a winning team right away, I think Shayok, you can honestly probably just plug him in as a 3 and D. So that's why I have him ahead of Zaire because I think Zaire still has another year or two to develop. Um, I have Matisse Thibel at 10th versus, you know, everybody else having him at the rankings having him at 7th because – I'm looking at it from a playoff perspective. I don't feel like Brown's going to trust Matisse as much as he's going to trust these other veteran players. Even I think I think even Forkon Korkmaz has a longer leash than uh, Matisse does when it comes to uh, making mistakes in a playoff situation. Yeah, I, I think I agree with that quite a bit. I think where my hang-up with Korkmaz is, I have him below Thibel personally. Um, he's mm-hmm. just really not a good defender. He's made some improvements, but he's still pretty easily the weakest link um, in the second unit, and I think that's going to hurt him, especially in the playoffs. But obviously he's a much more developed offensive player than Matisse, and that has its own drawbacks. And with Shayok, I think that's totally fair. We've pretty much seen more of him than Zaire at this point. He's been a better, more impactful player, at least in the G League, than Zaire has. And we haven't seen much of Zaire at the NBA level to really offset that. So I think that's totally fair. They're both kind of wild cards at this point in terms of what they're they're going to look like at the next level. But uh, I think that's a totally fair toss-up to have at the at the bottom. And one more thing I want to point out is that I, I know, at least for my list and for the other, the general list, is that we both have, both lists have Kyle Quinn ahead of Norval Pell. Mm-hmm. And I find that interesting, even though Pell is over, you know, overtook O'Quinn's playing time this season. So... I think maybe either we're being biased or maybe uh, maybe we just believe that Brett Brown made the mistake of playing Pell over Quinn, and I'm more towards the latter. But that's yeah, that's anyway. That's that was just the other thing that I just noticed with the list, and I was like, huh, didn't realize that we did that. Did you? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think I think O'Quinn sort of took back that role the last couple of weeks before uh, the season was suspended. I know he played a bit while. Um, Towards the end there, but I think it's really a toss-up between them. We haven't seen a ton out of Pell, really. I think O'Quinn has a longer track record, which probably plays into this. They both have very (laughs) different skill sets, so it's really hard to compare them, even though they're at the same position. O'Quinn can space the floor. He's a really smart passer. Pell's kind of that athletic springboard shot blocker, rim rim runner. Hmm? Mm -hmm. I was just saying underrated passer for O'Quinn. Very underrated. Yeah, they're they're just different players. I have them at 13, 14 personally, just like um, our final list. So they're right next to each other. I think it's really a toss-up. 
similar to Smith and Shayak, I mean, where you can really go any direction there. And there's a solid argument for it. So speaking of your list, go ahead and tell the people your list, because there's right. there's one thing that I, I know about your list that I'm not I, I got I got to talk to you about first. But go ahead and tell the people because okay. I I need I need them to know. Okay, I'll go from bottom to top as you did. At 16, I have Mario Shayok. 15, Zaire Smith. 14, Norvell Pell. 13, Kylo Quinn. 12, Mike Scott. 11, Haul Neto. 10, Furkan Korkmaz. 9, Glenn Robinson III. 8, Matisse Thibel. 7, Alec Burks. 6, Shake Milton. 5, Al Horford. 4, Josh Richardson. 3, Tobias Harris. 2, Ben Simmons. And number 1 is Joel Embiid. So I've got two questions here for you. I'm going to start with the more, the more, the bigger one here. You have Al Horford ahead of Shake Milton. Explain your reasoning there, sir. Okay. Obviously, Al has not looked very good this year. If we're going off the past, you know, two months of the Earth's existence, obviously Shake takes the cake there. But I, I think just part of this is just pedigree, and we've known about Horford and his talent for a lot longer, and it's really hard for me, even after such a bad season, to kind of write him off and put him at six or seven here. Just because I don't think the situation has been too conducive to his success. We've talked a lot about how he has negatively impacted Ben Simmons and Joel Embiid. The fit's pretty bad all around, but I do think the inverse of that is also true, where Joel Embiid and Ben Simmons don't exactly help maximize Horford's skill set. You know, his best talents are kind of revolve around his playmaking abilities from that five spot ability to kind of work in the pick and roll, the high post, the post, and he really doesn't get those opportunities next to Joe and Ben. So I think with another team, Horford would be a lot better than he looks right now, even if he has lost a step defensively, which is obviously true. I think it's just a little bit premature to move Horford out of the top five, though I certainly understand it. Shake has had two or three really good weeks, but that's all he's had. Kind of saw him you know, he had a few good games at the beginning of the season, and then he got hurt, and he was kind of in no man's land for a while there. So I, th- I think it's just the length of, you know, resume that keeps Horford overshaped for now, but I, I certainly understand the argument to go the opposite way. You, you make some valid points, and just to, and, and to just to piggyback off that, I think that a change of scenery probably will help him rediscover himself, even if he has lost a step. And uh, I'm going to give you guys a little sneak peek of um, this month. I'm planning on doing a three potential, at least three, if not more, maybe five potential landing spots for uh, Al Horford this offseason. And uh, one of them, and I think this place would maximize his skill set the most, would be the Golden State Warriors. I think uh, him next to Steph Curry, Clay Thompson, with his uh, passing, screen setting, floor spacing is the most ideal fit with those two uh, sharpshooters. But that's that's just one place, and that's just me, you know, just thinking of potential landing spots for him. But, yeah, I agree. I need some help about Horford's just, you know, his, his bad fit and vice versa, the bad fit with him and, and Joel and Ben together. Um, I think separately they've proven I, – I, you know, there was a small sample size. The last – I believe it was the last game before the regular season ended. Granted, it was against the lowly Detroit Pistons, but 
Horford and uh, Embiid were able to play pretty well together without Ben there. So, uh, you know, maybe maybe just a combination of both stars that it's just kind of like maybe it doesn't make it work. But you make a valid point there. Now, the other one, and this is this is the one that irks me more than, than the Shake Milton and the um, Al Horford one is, Chris, how do you have Paul Neto ahead of Mike Scott at number 11? Explain that to me, please. Okay. We talked about this a bit earlier, so I think you know where I'm going with it. I'm still a lot higher on Neto, I think, than most Sixers fans are at this point. I think he's gotten a bit, kind of gotten the short end of the stick here uh, with regard to how people talk about him. Obviously, the Sixers don't really have a role for him at this point, which is a bit of a shame, but he's a good shooter. He's shot more efficiently than Mike has pretty much all season. He's a fairly smart playmaker, doesn't doesn't really tear it up as as far as pull-up shooting or anything like that goes, but he's a smart playmaker. He can pressure the rim at times. He doesn't turn the ball over a lot, and he, he defends his position well. I don't think Scott's a particularly, you know, solid defender himself, Scott. We, we haven't seen Mike hit threes at the rate that we're used to, and that's really his main skill. On the offensive end is his ability to space the floor. He doesn't do a ton else uh, to help the Sixers. So when he's not hitting threes, he's really a pretty strong negative. So I, I think Neto's just the more well-rounded player. I know we've seen more of Scott this year, but I'm going to stick with Neto ahead of him for now. I'm going to have to respectfully disagree, Chris. I, I think you're overvaluing Neto at this point. And honestly, I, I was a little mad when Trey Burke was waived. I thought, you know, I thought he got the raw end of the stick there because he was the only person that could create a shot off the bench, despite his inefficiencies as a playmaker and defender. And I think I okay, so Neto had what one really good game after the new year, and that was against the Golden State Warriors, who are basically mostly a G League team at this point. So I, I feel like that game, I, you know, that game's an outlier. I can't I can't take that game as a serious thing. Now, I can't deny that he's a, he takes smart shots and that he doesn't turn the ball over. I'm not denying that. But if I think he gets taken advantage defensively more often than I think you're willing to admit there, Chris. I think he's – I'm not saying he's a liability defensively, but I think he's, he's not as gritty as – TJ is so his lack of bulk and size does um, does him a disservice against more athletic and stronger offensive players. Mm-hmm. So with that in mind, I just I I think I have Neto ranked 13th. Only he's only ahead of Pell, Shayok, and Smith in my rankings. So that's mm-hmm. how I feel about him. And uh, there's a reason why uh, Shake Milton took overtook him pretty easily in the rotation once uh, Simmons went down. So that's how I feel about that. Yeah, I, I'm not saying Neto is an elite defender by any stretch. I wouldn't even say he's a good defender. I do think his, I don't think bulk is the issue. I think he has a pretty solid frame, but he's obviously a fairly limited athlete. He's not that tall, so he's limited in terms of who he can guard. He's really a one-position defender. But the same can sort of be said for Mike. He's not great against centers. And he's not really quick enough to guard most threes. So it kind of goes both ways there. It just depends on what you need. And it's really situational when comparing them. Yeah, I'm sticking with Neto. I think it's close. It's another coin flip for me. I'm not particularly strong-willed in my opinion there. You can you could easily argue for Scott. And I wouldn't you know have a major issue with it. But 
my my heart leans Neto at the moment. Well, you can't deny your own heart, I'll say that. But we're going to go ahead and move on to our next subject here, Chris, and we're going to talk about the biggest jumps from the preseason rankings to now. Indeed. So, Chris, how about you go ahead? Yeah, go ahead and do the preseason. Uh, give the people tell, let everybody know about uh, where we were at in the preseason. So, just to rehash things, our list. I'll go over our list from September, and then we can go from there. We had 17 players at that point. So, number 17 was Norvell Pell. Number 16 was Mariel Shayok. Number 15 was Furkan Korkmaz. Number 14 was Sheikh Milton. Number 13 was Jonah Bolden. Number 12 was Howell Neto. 11, Trey Burke. 10, Matisse Thibel. 9, Kyle O'Quinn. 8, Zaire Smith. 7, James Innes. 6, Mike Scott. 5, Josh Richardson. 4, Al Horford. 3, Tobias Harris. 2, Ben Simmons. And number 1, of course, was Joel Embiid. Obviously, a lot has changed since then. We've dropped Mike Scott, I think, five spaces. We've dropped Kyle O'Quinn a few spaces. You know, there's a lot We're going to go through some of the bigger bigger shifts here. And I think one of the most notable ones is before the season, we had Zaire Smith at number eight. He was behind only Mike Scott and James Ennis, who is no longer here in the second unit. Obviously, some fairly high expectations for a guy we didn't get to see much as a rookie. And he has not quite lived up to those expectations. So what are your thoughts on what happened with Zaire, who is now number 15 in our updated rankings? Well, I think what fans have to remember here and what we didn't take into account is that I, I don't think it came out at the time when we did this, uh, that Brett Brown basically said that this season was Zaire Smith's rookie year. And uh, ever since the end of the process, we know that for the most part, Brown has not loved playing rookie. Rookies big minutes, exception to Matisse Thibel. So, with that in mind, we saw we, we barely saw Zaire at all. We saw him for seven games this season and playing only about four and a half minutes per game. So, nothing really on the NBA level. On the G League level, though, he did show some progress. Uh, last season in the G League, he only averaged about seven points. This season in the G League, he averaged 13 points and about two assists per game, shooting 37.6% from three. And what was really impressive from Smith, G League-wise, is that for the most part, he saw a steady production and increase in his production each month that he was in the G League. So in November in the G League, he, uh, he averaged 12.8 points per game, shooting 47% from the uh, 47.3% from the field and 22% from downtown. In March, he averaged 14.6 points per game, shooting 62.2% from the field and 50% from the three-point range. So, with that in mind, we obviously and you know throughout the months there was maybe one or two outliers here and there stats-wise, but for the most part, we saw a steady increase of production from Smith in that regard. And you know, one thing that I, I see, even though it was a decrease in production, I think it was a positive, is that. In November, he averaged 4.2 rebounds per game, and basically each month after, he saw a decrease to, and then in March, he was only averaging 2.2 rebounds a game, and that was mainly his defensive rebounding, which tells me is that he, he was more focused on running out in transition based off of those stats. Now, I didn't get to see any, I, I tried to go see him in live action G League during November, but it was the one game that he got called up for the Knicks game, so I didn't get to see him. Got to see some other fun players. Uh, 
Shake Milton was there. He was he was solid in that game, and uh, Chris Kumaji was actually really, really impressive in that game. I wouldn't be surprised if he got a two-way contract this offseason, but that's not the point here. So we saw some good progress from Smith in the G League, but I think we're still he's still transitioning from playing power forward in college and high school to shooting guard in the NBA. So I think getting his hand, developing his ball handling skills and just getting him used to playing that new position is probably something that the Sixers might need to take another year on. But we saw some good progress in terms of what he did in the G League level. Yeah, I I think with Zaire, I, I, I think we all obviously overestimated his ability to make an immediate impact. We all kind of maybe bought a little too high on his on-ball defense and ignored just how raw he was on offense. Moving forward, I'm still fairly high on him as a prospect. I've been high on him since he was at Texas Tech. I was really a fan of him coming out of the draft. I thought the trade, uh, I thought the Mikhail Bridges trade was a big-time win. Uh, when the Sixers pulled it off. So yeah, with with Zaire, I, I just wrote about it recently. I think he's going to find a way to contribute at some point in the future, whether it's next year or the year after. I don't think it's you know time for Philadelphia to give up on him. He's a 1% athlete. He's one of the highest leapers in the league. And he, he does have some serious defensive potential. I do think Matisse hurts him in a way, just because the Sixers can only put so many players on the floor who can't shoot or dribble. So Zaire will essentially have to prove that he can shoot before he gets real minutes. But as you said, he's kind of he's, he's moving in that direction. He's shot you know 38% from three this year in the G League. That's a really positive number. He's done it on pretty solid volume too. So so I do think there are positive indicators there. I think it's far too early to give up on him as a player. But obviously our expectations were just way too high before the season. Mm-hmm. So, Chris, I guess the next player that we've got to look at here is uh, Al Horford. He was originally fourth, and then he dropped to sixth in our rankings. So i got to ask, why do you think that is? And you kind of already touched on this earlier, but I want you to kind of go into more depth about it. Yeah, I, I, I'll start off by saying that I had Horford at number three before the season. So it's an even bigger drop uh, for me personally. I've always been really high on Horford as a player. I was personally very excited when he's signed in Philly just because he's someone that I admire and someone that I enjoy watching and I was excited to to cover him but obviously the season has been a bit of a downturn the fit's pretty bad all around as we mentioned he doesn't really help him beat in Simmons and and they don't exactly help him he's been kind of reduced to a spot-up shooting role which is just not not his forte even though he can shoot it's not it's not the skill that you bank on when you have Al Horford on your team and defensively, he's lost. He's lost a step big time. He really hasn't been able to play the four effectively at all. And even the center minutes when Joel sits have been have been rough a lot of the times. So I think the big story here really is Shake moving up from what was it like 14 or 15 to to five. I think his rise has been somewhat meteoric in just how quick it was. It took a few weeks, and he was kind of a bottom five guy to a top five guy, but. Yeah, it's just been a rough season for Al. It's what happens when players get old. He's 33, 34, and, you know, father father time doesn't lose. So it happens. Yeah, no, I, I tend to agree. I think father time does play a factor into this. And I think we both kind of anticipated that not happening this early in the contract, and I think that was the biggest shock to everybody here. 
And and I think uh, I think uh, and you, I think you touched on it here, but I think the way that Brett Brown has used him as primarily a spot up shooter next to Ben Joel just has not been good for his his overall offensive game because that's not a strength of his. He's he's he works out of the you know mid to high post, you know setting screens, dribble handoffs, popping out for mid range shoot uh, shot jump shots. That's his strength there, and I think. Think that that's kind of hurt him, but moving on to sh- you mentioned Shake, and you're right, he jumped from 14th to 15th. And I'm gonna talk about Shake here for a minute because I'm very, I'm very pro Shake Milton right now. I'm very excited about his future Aren't with the franchise. All? So this season, we are. I think he's probably been one of the best feel good stories of this Sixers team this season, outside of Ben making it actually attempting a three point shot earlier this season. Shake is a very close second there. So basically, last season, Shake averaged 4.4 points a game, shot 39% from the field, 31% from, uh, well, almost 32% from downtown. This season, uh, despite only having the explosion near the end of the year, he was still averaging, shooting 49%, almost 50% from the field. 45% 45% from downtown and averaging 9.5 points and 2.2 assists per game. Now, to put this into more perspective for everybody here, pre-All-Star break, he was only averaging about 6 points per game. Post-All-Star break, he was averaging 16.5 points a game. And it gets even crazier. In January, he averaged 11 points per game. February, 9 points five points per game and then March will be really one thing guys two really good games and he uh, a couple of re- a good stretch of games and he averaged 19.4 points per game and we yeah, have 4.2 percent and that was when Simmons was missing those games but I think I think I wrote about this when it was going on you know before the season went on a hiatus I think shake can and this is kind of a hot take here but I feel like she can become what Markel Fultz was supposed to be now. Does that mean that he's going to be as good as – does he have the same ceiling as Markel? No. I don't think he's quite the same athlete. He's not the, He doesn't have that quick uh, first step that Markel has, and I don't think he's as good as a playmaker or a ball handler that Markel is. But he can be that third – third, you know, secondary playmaker, third scorer that can create his own shot off the dribble. He's not he's not an elite athlete, but he's much better at creating his own shot off the dribble and getting his own shot off better than uh, Tobias Harris is. And so I think he can be that third player that can average. I think we're seeing it right here. He could probably average, if I had to guess, you know, probably about 15, between 14 and 16 points per game, kind of like what Richardson was doing, but he's much better ball handler than I think Richardson is at this time, too, and I think he's better at creating his own shot than Richardson is, because we saw that game where he was just pulling up from deep, shooting three-pointers, and tied an NBA record for most three-pointers uh, shot in a row. Uh, you know, obviously, I think his shooting will come back down to earth a little bit, but it's kind of hard to argue with the fact that he's he's going to be very good for this team, and I think he can be that, that bridge player that helps make that helps the Sixers in crunch time when Embiid and Simmons are not at or their strengths aren't at their peak. For sure, and I, I think just to put it in context, if before the season you said that by May we would be 
credibly ranking Shake Milton ahead of Al Horford, I feel like that would have surprised quite a few people. I, I think it just goes to show how impressive Shake has been, as well as how disappointing Al has been. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm almost, and I say this as someone who has Shake at six on my personal board. I'm really hoping that we aren't jumping the gun a bit here because we have only had really about a month of really solid, consistent, good basketball from Shake just because that's pretty much been the only month that he's been, you know, on the floor getting consistent playing time. That's not really his fault. That's just how it's worked out. So it is kind of early in his his rise, per se. But what we have seen looks legit. You mentioned the 39-point game against the Clippers. He hit 13 threes in a row across three games, which I believe tied or, or broke the NBA record, as you said. So, I mean, all indications are, you know, is that he's legit. He's a great shooter. He has been since his college days at SMU. He looks the part of a pretty solid defender. Not great, but he's he's long and versatile, and he can make some plays there. And like you said, he's not he's not maybe the shifty ball handler that Markell is, but he does fill that role of someone who can run a pick and roll, make some smart passes, put pressure on the rim, kind of help liven up the half court offense, which is what the Sixers need a lot these days. So yeah, I think he's legit. I think putting him over guys like Alec Burks and Matisse Thibel and Glenn Robinson. You know, it just says a lot about how good that past month or so of basketball was from Shake because he really hasn't done much prior to that. I mean, just credit to him mm-hmm. for, for how well he, for staying ready and coming in and doing what he did, especially after Ben went down. Well, and and to add on to that, I think we shouldn't be completely surprised because his uh, rookie year in the G League, when he was on a two-way contract, he was averaging 24 points, basically five assists and five uh, rebounds a game. So he was doing it at the G League level. And then, if I remember correctly, Chris, didn't you have him ranked in the top 20 of your pre-draft analysis back in 2018? I don't know if he was top 20, but he was at least top 30. He might have been top 20. I, I, he was a first-round pick in my book, for sure. Yes. So, I, you know, and then he drops to fifth, uh, 54th because of the back injury. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think, uh, I, I think Delaware and uh, Connor Johnson, the head coach with the Blue, uh, Blue Coats, should deserve a lot of credit for his development over the past year, two years now, basically. So got to give them props but yeah no i think it's like you said it's just amazing and i you know it's kind of hard it's it's kind of unbelievable to realize that brett brown didn't realize what he had in shake until then and i don't know if that's a detriment to brown or if it's just giving you know shake making the most out of his opportunity i mean the guy was on uh the jump with rachel nichols recently so you know when that that explosion game happened against the Clippers, so got to give him credit there. Yeah, I, I don't know how much uh, of that you can pin on Brown. I, I do think it's a bit strange that Milton was... He started out the season strong, as we know. He got hurt, and he kind of faded out, spent some time in the G League even, and then he comes back, and he's really good. I mean, I think we kind of have glossed over the fact that Milton... Really early in the season, those first few weeks looked like he was going to be part of the rotation. So we had some early he signs. Did. So he did, and then that, that injury happened. Yeah. Yeah. 
You're right. So him being good isn't entirely out of the blue, and I do think it's fair to question Brown on that front. But also, you know, you bring in guys like Alec Burks, Glenn Robertson, Furkan started off the season hot. He didn't get hurt. Same with Thibault. It, it, it's just there's a lot of competition there, even though we, we kind of make fun of how, how thin the Sixers bench is. They've had some pretty solid play on the wing this year, especially with Thibault and Korkmaz in, in particular. So it, it's there are a lot of factors at play there, but but I do think I do think it's fair to kind of bring up the fact that he was buried so deep in the rotation, and then all of a sudden he's scoring 39 points, and he looks like someone who should start every game. And another thing that I think we need to bring up here is that he looked really bad in the summer league this past summer. He looked really bad as the lead guard mm-hmm. there, and it just shows how much progress he made just for between then and now. Because he did not, I mean, I, I remember the first game that I watched. Chris, it was, I, I was just, I was ready to give up on him then as a point guard. I did, throughout the whole entire preseason, I was just like, he can't be, pre, he has to be a scoring guard. He cannot, I would not trust him ball handling. And then lo and behold, he proves us wrong. And that's great for him. I'm, this is, like I said, the second best feel good story of the season with, besides Ben Simmons actually attempting three pointers, even though he's not doing a lot. But actually, speaking of Ben, uh, you know, taking three-pointers, Jackie McMullen, the great Jackie McMullen of ESPN, recently did an article about Ben's three-point shooting. So I, I guess, I, uh, you know, there's there's a lot to take in from this, um, but I think we're just going to hit on three major points. I did, before we get to those points, I do want to point out that for people that think that Brett Brown hasn't tried everything to get Ben to shoot, you know, besides being, you know, like a mean, uh, I, I, you know, he, he threatened to bench him, basically. That's what McMullen reported. And Brown ultimately decided not to do that because he doesn't feel like that's the best thing to do. And you don't bench your franchise player. It, it never, it, 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 especially the fact that he's already on a, a hot seat, that just, that, that's not probably the best thing for his uh his career in Philly, if he makes the franchise uh, franchise player mad at him, you know. Anyway, go, let's go ahead and hit this first point though. There's there's three main points that we took away from this, and this goes to kind of goes with Brown is Ben's need for accountability. Now, Chris, how do you view about that? Yeah, I thought the um, article was really interesting, and just in terms of how honest Ben was with with Jackie in these interviews and it, it really confirmed a lot of I think the suspicions that Sixer fans have um, is that Ben he just flat out said that he needs someone to push him and to hold him accountable which I think is really brave of him to say because that's something that you know we probably shouldn't give someone crap about but that's someone that a lot of people are going to give him crap about is that he would say that and that he he says that he struggles with motivating himself personally. And and I, I think that's probably the case for a lot of guys. And I think it may be a little bit more obvious for Ben just because of how much people harp on his jump shot, how obvious his one flaw is. I think he's very unique in that sense, and it, it kind of opens him up to a lot of criticism that other, other players don't get, even if they deserve it. But, you know, he needs people to push him, and I think that's that's a very natural thing. And... He seems to be working on that a lot. The article went into pretty great depth on that. We'll get to his shooting, but he seems to be getting more comfortable on that front. So so I, I viewed it as a positive. I know others are probably going to view it as a negative, but I, I thought it was pretty cool of him to say that. Well, 
it's good to hear that he needs that he's willing to admit that he needs motivate accountability. And but at the same time, I feel like Brett Brown tried to keep him accountable. He threatened to bench him, even though he didn't follow through on it. And I think that was probably wise for his job security not to follow through on it. But also just from a you know you know Brett Brown's a players coach. He's not going to do be the you know hard coach like Jim Boylan is. Gosh, Jim Boylan would have benched him in a second. Um, or Tom Thibodeau, you know. So I I think that was probably a good call by Brown not benching him. But you know he's called him out in public before. You know, asking him to shoot threes, and Ben did not respond. And, you know, and it goes back to, you know, he says he needs accountability, but when Brown tries to provide it, it doesn't seem to be received. So I don't know. Like, in, in the article, it talked about how his high school coach would used to rip into him, and then he would do a lot better. But obviously, that's a high school kid versus a grown adult now, and, you know, different situ- uh, situations. So I don't know. I don't know about that. Um, I guess the other thing, the, but yeah. this all goes back to men's lack of confidence and comfort, comfort, being comfortable outside the paint. And I think it was either in that article or in another place that it was reported that Brett Brown said if he had, if he had house money, meaning if the Sixers weren't contending or in a place to contend, he'd be taking outside shots. But the pressure of being a contender, I, he, Brown believes, has gotten to Ben. So what do you think about that? Yeah, and I think just tying this back to uh, your last point about accountability, I think it's important that Ben has has recognized that and that he he understands that he needs that. And, and obviously the next step for him is acting on it. And, and in terms of confidence and comfort, I thought it was really eye-opening just from, I believe it was what Ben's trainer slash brother said in the article, Sean Tribe, about how Ben is really almost self-conscious about how efficient he is, and he wants to be efficient, which is why he he goes to the shots that he goes to. He's really comfortable in the paint, obviously. He's comfortable taking those little hook shots that he does. Ben obviously has a very acute awareness of of where his strengths are and how he can help the Sixers win games right now. So I do think what Brett Brown said was true, where if the, the Sixers were the Cavs and they were losing 60 games a year, Ben would probably feel a little bit more comfortable jacking up some bad shots. But with the Sixers, who are trying to win a championship, I I think it's kind of put him in a situation mentally where he feels the need to do what's quote-unquote best for the team at all possible times. And I think for him, it's just a matter of getting over that hump, getting comfortable with taking threes, even if that means missing them at a fairly high clip. You know, he needs to be able to, to, to handle the criticism that comes with that inevitably before he starts making them. You know, he's going to he's gonna miss threes before he starts making them, and that's just a process that he needs to be comfortable with. Uh, I agree, and, you know, it was interesting. It's, he said in the article he wants to come out and be a 40% three-point uh, three shooter right away. That's not going to happen. That ain't even going to happen to some of the great shooters. So, like, to have that expectation on yourself is unrealistic, and I think it's detriment. You know, I think if he can be a 35% three-point shooter, that's good enough in my book. Even 33, that's still, like, that'll make people come out on you occasionally. You know what I mean? So, that just going on that. But, you know, in the article, he said he he's feeling real comfortable, that he feels like he's ready, that he wants to start shooting threes. And, you know, we could see if the season continues or if in the playoffs, you know, if they jump straight to the playoffs. But do you honestly think we're going to see it this season, Chris? Not not really. 
like I'm skeptical of him just uh, of basketball just coming back and and then checking up threes every game. Like I I just don't see it happening, especially if it goes straight to the playoffs with his aforementioned self consciousness about efficiency. I don't think he's gonna enter a playoff setting and start taking threes if he's if he's not making them especially. So. I, I'm really skeptical. I think we're going to have to wait until at least next season for him to really start experimenting and opening up that part of his game. But, uh, you know, you never know. It, it, it could happen. It's not impossible, but I, I, I doubt it. Yeah, I'm going to be in the same boat in, with you. And another thing that I would like to point out in, in the article that I, I just remembered is that with Embiid, Embiid, you know, McMullen interviewed Embiid about it, and Embiid said this, that the only reason why he's out out on the perimeter trying to take three-pointers is to help Ben, because he knows how good Ben is in, inside the paint. And while he hopes that Ben will eventually return the favor, you know, he understands why Ben's not. So that, you know, that puts the question, that, that quote right there puts a lot of things to rest. And B doesn't want to be out on the perimeter. He does it because he knows he can do it at an okay rate. You know, 30% isn't great, but we'll take what we can get with the seven-footer, right? And so, you know, and he's willing to do it because he's trying to be a good teammate to Ben. And I think that's one of those things where people question about if they like each other or if they can good fit on the basketball court. And B's doing everything he can to make this work. So and now it's on Simmons in that regard. Yeah, and I think that's something Joe has kind of hinted at for a while. We've heard fairly similar quotes in post-game interviews and stuff. But yeah, he the, obviously the reason that Joe is out on the three-point line as often as he is is because the Sixers are in desperate need of spacing. Part of that's on Ben. Part of that's on the front office for not putting any shooters on the roster. But for keeping JJ. For, for signing Al Horford. <laughs> but yeah. I do think at some point, I think we are trending in the direction of Ben getting over the hump and taking threes. I do think at some point he's going to at least try to do it, but I don't think it's going to happen in, in 2019-20. I don't think that's the. I don't think this season is going to be that that tipping point. No, I don't think it's the season two, but. I, I think once Ben starts taking threes, I think the only time we'll really see Embiid taking threes is if he's trailing on a fast break. Because that seems to be his go-to, is when he's trailing on the fast break. That seems to be his best three-point shot, in my opinion, anyway. So, you know, if that happens, that would make me so happy. But, you know, my happiness is inconsequential to the Sixers' success. But I think that's that pretty much covers... Most of what we want to talk about, are you doing anything differently, though, Chris, because of this quarantine versus what you would be doing regularly outside of, you know, covering basketball? Well, honestly, outside of not being able to go to classes, you know, on campus, not a ton has changed. I've just been doing what I normally do inside the house more. Not being able to go to movie theaters has been a big bummer for me just because I'm 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 a movie guy and I go I go to a lot of movies during the year but I've been able to watch a lot at home so it it really hasn't been a big change in terms of what I'm doing it's more just where I'm doing it personally how about you well I am one of the essential workers I work for my father-in-law outside of this I'm not going to say exactly what I mean I'm basically just cleaning buildings um, but um, 
you know, but that's not even the point here. Um, so that doesn't change. And then my wife, she's an essential worker too. She works for the state. So, and she works 12 hour shifts, um, you know, so when she's, when she's not home, I'm with her. And, um, the only thing that's really changed is that we can't really do date nights or go to have family days out at like different places. So that's, that's about it. Uh, we're not, we're not the most social people either. So, you know, it's not that big of a deal for us. Um, yeah, so, I mean, outside of date nights and family times, I, you know, going out for family play dates, you know, I, I don't think much has changed for us either, except for the fact that there's like everybody and their mother decide, oh, as soon as toilet paper's on the thing, let's go get toilet paper. I mean, we're fine, but it's just like, come on, people. This has been going on for two months now. Like, chill out on the toilet paper mm-hmm. thing. Yeah, I never quite understood well, that. I, I really don't see the the overwhelming need for toilet paper. It, it's like of all the, the internet of all the essential items you could hoard, I'm not really sure toilet paper is the top priority. I don't know why that was like where people went mentally to toilet paper, but uh, I don't know. It, yeah, that I'm always confused me. It just is mind boggling. All right, well, I think we uh, have just about finished up here, Chris. Do you want to sign us out here for tonight? Yeah, thanks again, guys, for listening. As always, we are happy to be back and doing this, as we said earlier, weekly. This is going to be a consistent part of our coverage at the Sixer Sense. We're back for good. We're back for the long haul, and, and we plan to bring you some good content here, as well as on the site. You can obviously check out our Ranking the Sixers piece on the site with some great insight from our writers and we will see y'all next week. Thank you.